will simply ask him to speak about your grandfather, who has changed all our lives, Mahatma Gandhi. Thank you, Kathleen. I, I want to make one thing <coughs> clear straight away that, that I, I'm really going to talk about Mahatma Gandhi and not about my grandfather. Let me make, make it clear what I mean by that. I regard myself as a grandson of Mr. Gandhi, but Mahatma Gandhi has uh, either no children or everybody is, the, is his child. And, and so there's no special kinship with, uh, with Mahatma Gandhi. Certainly, I'm uh, very privileged to, to be the grandson of, uh, of Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, but he became Mahatma when he began to see everybody as, 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 as his own kin. I was talking to Justin about this, uh, the painter who, uh, who, uh, who very kindly offered to walk with me from the station to this place, and he, I won't, I won't be able to tell everything that he told me, but I was trying to explain to him the importance in India of um, of thinking of other people as other people's children as as, as your own. Uh, there is a wonderful documentary shot of Gandhi in London in 1930-31, the city you were talking about, Kathleen, yesterday. And so there is uh, here is here is a bit of uh, magic that happened in 1931, recorded on film. There are a lot of children surrounding him. This is, I think, um, East London, the poor part of London. It's a wonderful shot. And in, in that poor recording, you hear Gandhi say something. He's not very clear, but what he says is, I the children of the world, something like that. So there's an interpreter who says, he loves all the children of the world. Gandhi says, no, I didn't say that. I said, he, he, he corrects, I love all children as my own. There's a world of difference between saying, you love all the children of the world, partly because it's not true, no, you, we don't love all <laughs> children of the world, but it's much more important, I think, to be able to say that you love other people's children as your own. I think that is a remarkable thing. So insofar as Mahatma Gandhi loved, loved everybody as his own uh, children, I, I, do, I, have, I have no special relationship to him as a grandchild, but I know what you mean, Kathleen, and it's a very, <clears throat> very special responsibility uh, to talk about... Uh, talk about him and uh, you said uh, Kathleen yesterday that I'm, I'm, I'm able to lecture without notes this is not strictly true I have, uh, I have notes and, uh, <clears throat> and when, when I appear not to it, it's because I have I worked very hard on them and have uh, had some last minute a reason to, to abandon them. Today I have not uh, had uh, uh, that, that kind of uh, prompting, but I will, uh, I will read from notes. But let me find the right set of notes. I, I often make a mistake, so I'm going to give the same lecture, not the candy. This, by the way, is a very useful book. Now, I don't know how many good useful books on India are available in London. Uh, it's ages since I lived here. But this book is called Gandhi Essential Writings. You might want to write that down. It's edited by a man called Ramana Murthy, very interestingly named after my guru Ramana Maharshi. Ramana Murthy. And it was published by the Gandhi Peace Foundation many years ago. It remains, I think, the, the most useful single-volume work on Gandhi. 
It brings together all his important sayings on a variety of subjects, arranged chronologically and also subject matter-wise. It remains very useful. The collected works of Mahatma Gandhi run into several volumes, nearly a hundred volumes, and they are they are very violent-looking uh, uh, works, likely to be very useful as weapons if, if your house is burgled or something like that. But very, very daunting to uh, approach those things. But those are very, very useful too for scholars, for those who spend years of researching Gandhi. But this, for uh, <clears throat> for those who want to already access to his thoughts. This, this remains uh, unbeatable, in my, in my opinion. Well, Kathleen, uh, on London yesterday, uh, perhaps some of you were here yesterday. I know some of you were here. Yes, the, the, the city, Kathleen, does represent a very dark place in our times, a very, very dark place in our times. No doubt about it. No doubt indeed about it. It's a sort of concentration of darkness, isn't it? It's... Uh, <clears throat> But as, as, as Blake uh, teaches us, it, it, it also can, can reveal uh, a mysterious divine light. It, um, it is like that. And perhaps it's, it's, in, it's, in, it's in such need of light too that, that light often does shine in a strange way in, in cities. The occasional smile from a stranger in a city means so much more than the predictable culturally rooted, practiced smile of a civilization. But the unexpected smile of a stranger who could easily be very violent is all the more precious, I think. The, the fact that one survives at all in a city, even for a single day, is such an unexpected event that it can only call for great thanksgiving. So I, I do think that in all kinds of paradoxical, and humorous and tragic ways, the city does teach us what might be called the mercy of God and, and the great mystery of, of life. But it's also, in, in, in those moments when, when light shines through it, a, a constellation of lights, isn't it? Like New York you described yesterday, or even Delhi from the aeroplane uh, at night, and, and other cities. And that, that's when it looks like a constellation of stars in the sky. Man, is this too. And it's really about a constellation of these stars that I've been talking about, the sages of modern India. They really are like, like a constellation of stars. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, Vivekananda, Ramana Maharshi, Mahatma Gandhi and others, and the list could be made longer, but they really are like that. And, um, and they represent the light of the city in that unexpected kind of way sometimes. They were greatly and deeply connected with cities, of course, and not only they. One thinks of Jesus and his, and his connection with the city of Jerusalem. Walks into, uh, 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 rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, doesn't he? Isn't, isn't that, when I first read that and, and thought about it, I was so moved. Uh, the donkey, the symbol of, of that which uh, is treated so badly and bears such heavy loads. Uh, but Jesus uh, uh, says that his yoke is light, doesn't he? So the, the body, the, the donkey body, we burden it with so much. But uh, when we are turned towards uh, the light or the truth, then this body can take that weight. And, and like the city, the body, the body the word for... <coughs> For, um, for humanity, for the human being, for man. In Sanskrit it's Purusha. That means the dweller of the city or the soul of the city, literally. So they, they, it's high on the agenda of, of uh, scriptural texts. I wonder why the city. Because it needs, uh, needs help the most, perhaps. And also because it's, it's been a challenge, like Jesus riding into Jerusalem, like the Buddha 
returning to Kapilavastu, the, 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 the city, the, the capital of, of the kingdom which he had left, and as, as a mendicant this time, testing its compassion, offering his wisdom and his dharma. And, um, and then Blake, finding both darkness and light. And, um, and then Ramakrishna Paramahamsa in the 19th century. I keep, keep coming close, closer to our times, especially to our times in India. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. <coughs> Yeah, I, I mentioned this yesterday, Kathleen, by way of a small response to your moving lecture on Blake and, and London, that this other sage uh, of the 19th century, of Victorian Calcutta, yes, Calcutta is, was very much, still is, very much like London in parts. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa <coughs> chose to, to live in, in, a, in a place not far from Calcutta, and although he, he would certainly have understood what, what Blake says about, about uh, the dark satanic mills, and so on, but he still loved the city, he lived on its periphery and was persuaded by some of his disciples one day to visit the Calcutta Zoo because he was told that there is a lion there and the lion is the, is the vehicle of, of the Divine Mother in Hindu iconography. And Ramakrishna was, was a worshipper of the Divine Mother so he said, take me to the zoo, take me to the zoo, he could be childlike so he was taken to the zoo and there he stood in front of the lion, the caged lion, and that sent him into spiritual ecstasy. And he had to be brought quickly back to Dakshineshwar. That was the end of his trip to the zoo. He refused to see the other caged animals. That was his way of uh, saying that this tremendous energy of, of life has been caged in the city. This is the, the, the medium of transmission of, of divine shakti. You can't live like that. A city is a cage. But it's a, it's a, it's a shakti. It's, it's this divine energy that lies caged too and demands to be set free. And he also tried to seduce, in, in the spiritual sense of the word, the intellectuals of the city to, 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 to singing and dancing to the glory of God. And he succeeded remarkably amongst, the, like Socrates, amongst those who uh, were thus seduced were Keshav Chandra Sen, the great uh, leader of the Brahma Samaj, initially very cool and critical of Ramakrishna. I'm coming to Gandhi in a minute. I've not forgotten that, that it's, it's really a lecture on Gandhi that I have to give. I, I promise I will come back to, to the subject of Gandhi. But one has to approach the subject of Gandhi in, 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 in a sort of historical way, I think. Keshav Chandra Sen, a Girish Ghosh, the great actor, who was one of his favorite disciples. And the, the others uh, wanted him not to be a favorite disciple because he was a drunkard, Girish Kosh. But, uh, but Ramakrishna had great patience with every kind of disciple like Jesus. And others, Vivekananda, the great uh, star of Calcutta, the, the hero, the absolutely the most brilliant young man of the time in India. And, and others, and others. Ramakrishna. Ramana Maharshi, my beloved guru, in the city of Madurai, Kathleen the city of the Divine Mother, the fish-eyed Divine Mother, Meenakshi. It is there that he attained self-realization in a city, a city made blessed by the self-realization of this, this young, young boy, uh, Venkataraman, who later became Ramana Maharshi. And then Gandhi, yes, Gandhi. He was always visiting Delhi, always visiting Delhi. Towards the end of his life, he stayed in Delhi. I think I can part with my notes for a while at this point because I've come to the heart of our subject. I don't mean only the subject of our lecture. 
and let me share a theory I have about the etymology of the word Delhi. I, I said to, to some, some friends in, in, in my, my uh, Upanishad class the other day that unlike prophets and, and, and visionaries who say, I have a dream, I have a dream, I am a dull philosopher who keeps saying, I have a theory, I have a theory, so I, I have another theory. I have a theory that the word Delhi is etymologically connected with the Sanskrit or the Prakrit word Dehri, may even be the Persian word Dehlis, which, which mean the threshold. Delhi is a, a city in the north of India, very <coughs> literally it is on the, uh, it is the threshold of the Himalayas. From, from Delhi you can, you can you, you're not far from the Himalayas. If you look north, Himalayas call you to renunciation. The Himalayas, the mountains have always called everyone to renunciation, to the great heights, literally the mountains. The other day, we, it is being celebrated today. The conquest, unfortunately, the word continues to be used 40 years after the event. The conquest of Mount Everest. I was so alarmed when I found this word used again the other day. Surely the climbing of Mount Everest might have been forgivable, but the, it was the mountain which blessed Hillary and Tenzing. And, it, and, 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 and the mountain who conquered them, really, not the other way around. But be that as it may, these mountains of varying heights, they are called to renunciation. Calls to renunciation from Delhi. If you, are, if you are the king of Delhi or the queen of Delhi, you look to the north, to the Himalayas, and you are called to renounce it all, the empire. If you turn round, face south, there stretches before you the land of India, and you are called to rule. Also, threshold to empire, threshold to renunciation. Both, not one without the other. Only the greatest kings and queens and saints and sages of, of Delhi have been able to do this. There is a very great Upanishad, the Isha Upanishad, the secret of the Lord, literally, which teaches this. It says, clothe everything that moves and is still with the garment of God. Thus renouncing greed, enjoy this world. That is what Delhi asks you to do. The, 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 the Delhi which Blackwood has seen. The Delhi which Yudhishthira, the, the ancient king of the Mahabharata saw, who renounced Delhi after ruling from Delhi for many years with his brothers and went to the Himalayas. Gandhi knew this. He didn't want to crown himself king of India when independence came. No, he renounced Delhi. Literally. He was away in Noakali, in Bengal where people were slaughtering one another to save innocent lives. He had followed the, 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 the mantra of the Ishopanishad. He had understood the meaning of Delhi. He remains, therefore, the king of Delhi. And there have been queens of Delhi like that, and there have been many politicians who have ruled India but have not understood Delhi. Because, principally because, they have not been able to resolve this profound paradox of simultaneous renunciation and rule rule as the servant of God, as a trustee of his creatures, and renounce as a lover of God. The saints and uh, the, the poets of, of Delhi have done it, Kathleen Hindu and Muslim, Nizamuddin Aulia, Amir Khusro, Gandhi, and others are, are the real rulers of Delhi, the real disciples of the city of Delhi. The other ones who saw Delhi as this, this magical transformation of consciousness which enables it both to renounce greed and, and to love the world. So Gandhi does that. 
Gandhi in 1947, when independence comes to India and Pakistan in a divided, vivisected India. Vivisected is not a word perhaps some younger people in, in this city might be familiar. It, it's a great word in the 19th century. It really means the cutting open of handles and so on. I think there still are, are groups of people who oppose this, which is wonderful. But Vivis Gandhi saw the division of India as, as the vivisection. duty called him to Noakhali, a little village in, in Bengal. Um, my sister and her son is here and, and, and his wife has visited Noakhali. I haven't. And I believe that there still is there uh, uh, the, the spirit of, of Gandhi. But there he, he saved lives. He taught people the importance of not hating. And here I will uh, abandon my notes and re reflect on something which Kathleen and I were talking about just a little while ago. <coughs> about the book of Job, yes. And, and Kathleen has a marvelous book on Blake and the book of Job. And, and Blake, of course, is clearly opposed to the idea that God did not answer Job's questions. It was not a sentimental answer. It was a deep answer which we're meant to understand. And Kathleen's book helps us to understand It is in the spirit of that kind of answer that Gandhi, in Noakhali, answered a woman's wordless question. He was uh, traveling, walking uh, through these villages. He and a, and, a, and a small band of disciples, unarmed, in territory where, where there was slaughter and, and where they could have been killed. And they, they were brave people. And his... <clears throat> One of his secretaries was an anthropologist, Nirmal Kumar Bose. And I think he told me this, or I may have read it in a book of his. Uh, I tend to, to get these things wrong sometimes. One or the other. <coughs> it appears that a woman who had lost all her family, all of her family had been killed in the killing that went on there. And she came wordlessly to Gandhi. She'd heard that a saint was visiting her village. So she came wordlessly, but with the questions clear as anything, in her eyes, in her, in her, in her bearing. And Nirmal Kumar Bose sensed the question and turned to Gandhi and said in Bengali, he was translating Gandhi's Hindi into Bengali. She, she wants to, to know why this has happened, I think. I think that is what she wants to know. She wants to hear from you some words of consolation. And Gandhi said, in uh, Hindi, which uh, was translated into Bengali, which means in English what the Bible says, roughly. What he gave, he has taken away. Now that's a very unsentimental answer. But if you have the spiritual authority, then that's the only thing which can in the end console anybody. If he had said, well, you were, well, you're not the only one who has suffered, look, here's a list of those who have suffered. That's not going to satisfy or that things are going to get, get, get all right for you. This is not what happens to Job. Things keep getting worse and worse. This is not what he says. He doesn't even say that this, is not, this will not happen. No. What he says goes to the heart of the matter, to one who has reached the absolute bottom of despair. What he gave, he's taken away. 
And maybe he would get back. Maybe not. So that's Gandhi. Now I will place before you. Uh, no, before I do that, in this city, is I must share with you some, some of my memories of the city when I was a student here nearly 30 years ago, an embarrassingly long time ago. That does date me rather. It doesn't matter. I, I, I visited, I was quite poor. I didn't have the money to go to Europe uh, when, I, when I had the, the <clears throat> time. I didn't have the money. When I had the money, I didn't have the time. It's amazing how, how badly we plan our lives. But there was this re- retrospective uh, Giacometti exhibition in, in one of the galleries. And I, uh, <clears throat> I, I remember uh, looking at these, these, these uh, sculptures with awe. Oh, and, and actually, I did manage to touch some of them. I think we were, we were asked not to touch any of these things. And, and there was a pair of sculptures. One was called uh, uh, Standing Man. The other was called Falling Man. Two, two very great pieces of sculpture. It occurred to me then, Gaston, in the city of London, that there ought to have been a third sculpture called Walking Man in between. Walk, standing and falling. That was Gandhi. Walking Man. Not Walkman. Now you may now he, he would have utterly, I think, just disliked that, that kind of uh, invasion of, of the, the year. <clears throat> but uh, Gandhi, Noakali, this village where he, uh, where he was when um, independence was being celebrated in Delhi, uh, <clears throat> there is a photograph. I think photography is, with all the wickedness that it supports, it is also clearly God's gift to, to our, our, our century. Because otherwise, I would not have known what my guru looked like. Simple as that, Kathleen for me. There is a photograph of Gandhi, which is the basic text of my lecture, that photograph. It's a photograph taken of Gandhi in Noakhali, in this village that I've just been talking about. It shows Gandhi walking, crossing a bamboo bridge, a very precarious bamboo bridge, uh, uh, with uh, a loan. He had very few associates, and at a particular point in time, he said, and this is recorded, he said, now let us, let us try an even greater experiment, for God's sake. Let us go in different directions with complete faith in only his protection. Let us be alone. <coughs> so he was alone, and others went uh, in different directions. He's crossing the bridge, but clearly there were photographers around. So he was not quite alone. It's very difficult for Gandhi to be alone. But this picture, bless that photographer, shows Gandhi walking on this bridge alone. Kathleen, he has a, a stick in his hand, a walking stick, which is much bigger than him. And he is looking not at the, uh, the other end of the bridge, the, uh, the destination, place of safety, but he's looking at his feet and the whole thing bears the following meaning, I think. That we are meant to walk alone. This is a razor's edge. This is this period of transition from, from, from this dark age to another, perhaps. It always is in the human heart. In all ages it has been. We need as our support, we are indeed alone in this, but we need as our support a yardstick bigger than ourselves. And he's got this yardstick bigger than himself. And we need... We need to be looking at our feet. We need to make sure that the steps that we take are in accordance with what that yardstick would demand. There would have to be a purity of means to get there 
we, we are not permitted, if we are seekers after truth, to manipulate nature, humanity, the body, scripture, philosophy. No, we are not meant to do that. We are meant to take each step with great caution. And that, this is even more important than the goal. This is the, the, this is the Gandhi that I want to talk about. This photograph of Gandhi is so beautiful, so important. I, I, I wish it could be sculpturally uh, reproduced somewhere in, in, in this city. Who knows? And of course, this connects with, with the great hymn, Cardinal Newman's Lead Kindly Light, which was very dear to him. The one step enough for me idea. And in these dark times, Gandhi wanted to be led by, by that light of truth. But what is this yardstick? What is this yardstick? Gandhi described it in two words. Gandhi said that the, the guiding principle of his life was twofold truth and non-violence and these were indistinguishable the yardstick is truth and non-violence the two indistinguishable ends of this stick you could turn it around it would still be the same yardstick truth on top non-violence at the bottom or the other way around they are the same they, they constitute they, they, they constitute literally this yardstick truth and non-violence now, non-violence, now this connects with, 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 with England and, and, and the English language again. Non-violence, or ahimsa, ahimsa is the Sanskrit word, the great word in Indian philosophy, made, made great and memorable by, by Mahavira, the founder of Jainism, and others. But as a virtue, it's, it's there in all the systems of Indian philosophy and ethics. But Gandhi used the word non-violence in the 19th century, because this was a word, this is an inelegant translation of the word ahimsa. The literal translation of ahimsa would be non-injury or non-harm or something like that. Not non-violence. Now, why, Gandhi, of course, knew Sanskrit, but he was clearly not a Sanskrit a pundit of, uh, of, of very great scholarship. But I'm so grateful that he was not, because this, this blessed uh, uh, inadequacy of translation has transformed the world, I think. Here was a word, non-violence, lying around in, in, in the English language. I think it was being used by very small groups of people, vegetarians, anti-vivisectionists, and so on. I don't think they, 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 they were using it not as a translation of Ahimsa, but simply as a word which, which occurred to them. There may be another, a, a, a more scholarly history of this word in the English language. I don't know that history. But here it was, lying around. And like, like the good ecologist that he was, he didn't want to throw this word away. He saves this word. He puts life into it. He uses this word so that you can hear it as non-violation, literally. And he changes the world in the following way, I think. Up until the 19th century, or even until the beginning of the century, or even later, if you talked about non-violence, you would have been regarded uh, as a coward. <coughs> People would have said, you, you are a coward. What are you talking about non-violence? People still think that. But not everyone thinks that. 
Non-violence today may not always be a practical alternative. It may not always uh, be blessed with, with the kind of leadership that Gandhi provided or others provided. But it is not an option that can be dismissed as the option of cowardice anymore in the world today. For a country that says, or a group, or a class, or a race, or a community, or even an individual who says, I'm not going to retaliate. You can't laugh him out of court. You can't do that today. It may still not be the most sensible thing for them to do. No. But it would not be a foolish thing to want to do. Partly because of Gandhi's mistranslation of Ahimsa is non-violence, I maintain. Non-violence is a word that has been introduced by Gandhi into the vocabulary of heroism. Now, I call this a revolution. When, in, when you introduce a word which has largely meant cowardice to, to the vast majority of human beings into the vocabulary of heroism, when Gorbachev talks about non-violence, that's a heroic thing he was saying. When, when men and women, uh, individually or in groups today, don't want uh, to retaliate, don't want to subjugate, they may be in a minority, but it's the quality that I'm talking about. It's the difference. They are able to invoke the authority of Gandhi's use and pra- of the word nonviolence and his practice of it. So Gandhi's contribution is, in the end, a lexicographic contribution. I would say that he, he has introduced a, a new word into the vocabulary, not just of the English language, which is true, but of heroism, which, which is profound. But, 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 what is non-violence? It is an ancient example of, uh, of a ruler of the world who, uh, who asked the question, what is truth? And, and did not wait for an answer. He went away. Likewise, there would be many who would say, what is non-violence? And then would not wait for an answer. But I think there is an answer. What is non-violence? is a question that people do ask cynically today. And they ask the following kind of question of Indians and of those who like Gandhi. Would Gandhi have prevailed against Hitler? They ask with an amused, compassionate smile. Would he really have... Implying, of course, that, that, that the British were, were, were a gentlemanly uh, lot and they, they, it, it worked with them. There is truth in this, by the way. Uh, I'm not underestimating the great harm that some of the policies of the British Raj did, but they were, by and large, certainly responsible to moral, to, responsive to moral pressure as were Indian um, leaders. But would Hitler have responded to such a thing? I believe he did send a telegram to a particular viceroy in, in uh, India saying, why don't you shoot Gandhi and a hundred Congress leaders and that's the end of it. It might have suited him if this was done. It would have caused a revolt so violent that it would have swept aside not only the British Raj, but all that is civilized in India. Thank God the British didn't do this. But anyway, that was Hitler's way. That was not the British way. That was not the Indian way. But would Gandhi have prevailed against Hitler? Oh, well, there's a letter that Gandhi wrote to Hitler. It's a very interesting letter. I don't have the text here. This is written in 1940 or 41, when not too many people are criticizing Hitler, mind you. And he says to Hitler, 
this is Christmas time, and he writes a letter to Hitler, the gist of it is this. He says, uh, I'm not going by what your uh, detractors say about you. He's a lawyer, Gandhi, so he knows that if you go by the evidence of somebody's detractors, that doesn't count much. Going by what your admirers say, it's quite clear that you're totally lacking in humanity. says, you think you might uh, 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 humiliate Britain, well then some power, uh, maybe you will, maybe you won't, but some power greater than you will humiliate you, defeat you, don't you see that? The greater violence will always destroy violence. And at this time of uh, Christmas, uh, I appeal to you to just cease all hostilities for, for a few weeks. Then he said, I'm sending a similar letter to, to, to Mussolini with necessary changes. <laughs> but would Gandhi have prevailed against Hitler? That is the question. Now, I have thought about this question uh, uh, ever since it was first asked. And I think there is an answer. The answer has partly to do with, with getting the question right. There is a... There is a... a, a, a the question uh, in that form, I, th I think, is confused. If the idea is, if, if the Viceroy of India had sent Gandhi, sent Gandhi in an aeroplane to Berlin in 1943, would Hitler have given him? That is not the question. A, the Viceroy of India would never have done it. B, Gandhi would never have undertaken such a foolish journey. And that is not the, the kind of question. I think what it means is this. That if somebody like Gandhi had arrived in Europe, a European Gandhi, after the First War. And if he or she had organized on the basis of the principles of European spirituality, the things that Kathleen uh, 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 and the Temenos Academy are, are seeking to revive, if he or she, a leader of humanity in Europe, had fought against the idea of revenge in the way in which Gandhi fought against this idea in India, if they had fought against the evils of imperialism and racism which were there in, in European policies, would such a person not have been able to organize around themselves a whole community which would have prevented the Second War, which would have made Hitler a, a laughingstock? Nobody was able to go to Hitler and say, don't be silly, sit down. I, I was at a very interesting lecture the other day where from the audience uh, uh, somebody asked a very rude and a very, very filthy sort of question. And the chairman, in an accent of, uh, of, of the north of England, which I can't imitate, but he said, very, uh, shut up and sit down and shut up. Something like that. <laughs> it was so, somebody should have said that to Hitler. But you have to have the authority of that chairman who said, uh, sit down and shut up. <laughs> and the young man sat down and shut up. <laughs> Now, you, you can have that authority only if you're born at the right time. It's very important. And if you spend a whole lifetime, I think a Simone Weil, if she had been born in, 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 the, in, the, in the first decade of the century, she could have. She was born rather late. And, and, and she, she, of course, was rather like Gandhi. I mention her name because she, too, you may recall, I think she came to London because she wanted to fight for the, uh, for the uh, Free French under de Gaulle. And I believe she wanted to be to be sent to be to be dropped by parachute 
in France, and nobody ever did that, and she, had, she felt bitter about it. But the true reason for that was that she was regarded as such a talkative person that she would have ruined any plan of, of in any kind of sabotage. But here she remained, a philosopher, and she refused to eat more food than was permitted the average French prisoner of war. And so she died. I believe the London newspapers reported that event as French philosopher commits suicide. It's absurd, I think, that it should be reported like that. But she certainly had the passion of a Gandhi. If somebody like her had been around after the First War as an adult person, and if they had organized the, the spiritual energies of Europe, that, I, that is the correct answer to the question. The question should be, could a Gandhi arise in you? Could he? Of course, a Gandhi could arise anywhere. That is, I think, the answer to that question. There are people like George Orwell, who have criticized Gandhi for, for this idea of non-violence. People like Martin Buber, people I respect. People like Heidegger and, and others, who have, um, and many other lesser people with, uh, with less authority to criticize Gandhi. They have, but I think my answer to them is, is that they are mis, mis, misstating the question. They are not asking the right kind of question. Then the question is, why, why did Europe not permit such a figure? And why does it continue not to permit such a, a figure to arise? That is the question. And I think that's the question the Temenos Academy, uh, no doubt, would like to ask uh, uh, its students and um, its teachers. What can we do in Europe and in Britain to make it possible for, for that kind of spiritual aspirant with, uh, with a great uh, involvement in, in uh, public life and in the integrity of the public to arise? May such a person arise in, in London and in Europe. But that's Gandhi. But what is, uh, what is non-violence? What is non-violence? What about his advice to the Jews to, to resist Hitler non-violently? I've had Jewish friends who've been very upset by this. They said, how could he ask this? How could he possibly? How, 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 how to live? Uh, uh, my answer to them has been this. Don't forget that he, what he believed was the truth, he upheld that. And that's important. When somebody shares with you their own highest truth, that's a good thing. Often people don't do this. They compromise this in order to win the affection of, of another people. And they won't, you know, there is a subtle uh, <clears throat> condescension in saying, oh, it's all right for Indians, it's not all right for you. So this is something which needs to be understood, whether you agree with Gandhi or not. He was proposing, uh, uh, as a course of action to the Jews, what he was proposing to Indians. He said, if the Japanese were to attack, we will not resist them with arms. No, non-violent. We will refuse to cooperate with their demands. Totally refuse to cooperate. We will be an organized, non-violent community. And precisely this is what he suggested to the Jews. So I think there is here an element of honesty, which would certainly reduce the shock of the advice to those who find it shocking. I, I don't find it shocking. Secondly, I do think that this advice, whether it was realized, was practiced by many. And there was a, a heroism even to that. They were not likely to have succeeded through a violent resistance at all. But the, those who with dignity died, I, I think they, uh, there is heroism there. I do think so. Absolutely there is. 
And if this had been done in a more organized way, delving into the, into the spiritual resources of Judaism, and so on, it would have been even more heroic. I have no doubt about this. So I will not dismiss the advice of a saint so lightly. Well, I'd certainly like to keep my mind open. My mind is open to this. I'm not an idolater of, of uh, saints. But I do think that it's not meant to be dismissed in that kind of cynical way. Where were the, where were the intellectuals of Europe when, when Hitler was, uh, was, was, was conquering Europe? They, 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 were, uh, they, were, they were quiet. They were not opposing him when they could have. Gandhi was one of the few who uh, spoke to Hitler as um, he uh, deserved to be spoken to. I believe that letter was never sent to Hitler. I believe the, the, the British government didn't, uh, because they didn't want to create political confusion. Now I have to share with you a dream. Or was it a dream or was it something I've made up? I'm not able to, to, to decide these things anymore sometimes. Because the subject matter of, of, this his, of our history is, is so complex that there are horrors, there are nightmares, there are dreams, there are visions. It's all one kind of thing. So the, the, I, I saw the following in, in a dream or in a, in, in a mental picture. I don't know. But it's, it, 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 I did see it as I'm about to tell you. There are four characters to this dream. There's Gandhi, there's Churchill. Uh, there are three characters. There's Ramana Maharshi. Well, I did see two, two tiny figures on a sort of what looked like a beach. And you could see upturned battles and, and the smoke of battled, battle. Perhaps beaches of Normandy, perhaps. Two small figures. And on closer examination in the dream, they, they look like Gandhi and Churchill. Churchill was as usual overdressed with all those things, and Gandhi, as usual, underdressed. He was really wearing his hat. And Churchill had a cigar in his mouth. And they were uh, walking away. Gandhi was walking away very briskly from the scene of battle, and Churchill was following. Gandhi was walking too briskly away, so Churchill would pull, pull, him, would pull him back with his walking stick like Not so fast, not so... You can't abandon the habit of war-making so easily, might be that, that uh, lesson. So they would slow. Churchill was smoking his cigar, and this was making Gandhi cough a lot. And then a, very, a real close-up, and you find... A and then Churchill asks him in this dream the question which a journalist had asked Gandhi. Uh, he had asked Gandhi, what do you think of modern civilization, huh? So Churchill asks him this question. Mr. Gandhi, what do you think of modern civilization? Smoking the cigar, he's making Gandhi. Gandhi says in between fits of coughing, it would be a good idea. <laughs> Meaning the civilization is not a civilization, it's just an idea. And the cigar flies out of Churchill's mouth, becomes a missile in the sky. And there is fire on the, on, on the screen of the dream. And is that the way the world is going to end? I don't know, but this is not the end of the dream. So you see a little island somewhere. And there is a, a little hill, Kathleen, on that island. And on, on top of the hill, there is a little sculpted head of my guru, Ramana Maharshi. And this hill is on fire, and the flames are going up and up and up and up. And they are about to engulf the head when tears of compassion flow down from the eyes of the sage. And there is a battle between the raging fire and the tears of compassion. That's when the dream ends. I don't know what will really happen. But what that dream teaches me is that neither fundamentalist violence as exhibited by this, this dream Churchill figure 
no fundamentalist non-violence is exhibited by this Gandhi dream figure. But true courage and compassion alone can win against this, this fire that raises all around us. Truth and non-duality. So in this context, Gandhi becomes a caricature when we forget to add truth to non-violence. He never forgot to do that. So I would suggest that when people talk about Gandhi without talking about truth, that's a phantom Gandhi. That's not the real Gandhi. Non-violence is not cowardice. It's not simply a fear of, uh, of fighting. No, Gandhi was a fighter. He, he took on uh, uh, deeply rooted uh, structures of power. Power abused, whether it was the, the, the social structure of, of his own uh, civilization, which had been abused uh, down the centuries, or the political structure of, 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 of an alien empire. He, he gave these things a fight, a moral, spiritual, he was a fighter. But for the sake of truth, not for the sake of winning merely. And what is this truth? I think this truth is the truth of Ramana Maharshi, of non duality. Gandhi had no doubt about it at all. This truth is the truth that the nothingness which surrounds us is not the, the nihil which devours everything, but it is ourselves. It is the not thingness. It is the, the non-entitiveness of ourselves. The self, that which we really are, is not a thing among other things, but it is that accommodating space within which all things can be. So we don't have to fear that nihil, it is ourselves. We don't have to rush into it either, because we are already that. And in due course we will be that very dramatically also. We are one with that nothingness. We are one with matter. We are not reducible to matter. We are not made up of matter. That, that's, that's materialism and, and, and that is false and that's unfair to matter. Matter in its obedience to laws is a wonderful image of the autonomy of self, of the perfection of God if you like. It's an image of, of that which is law and which is law abiding and which is humble and doesn't compete for scarce resources. Matter is ourselves in that sense, in that sense of a true materialism, of a true nihilism, even if you like. There is a true materialism and a false materialism. There is a true nihilism and a false nihilism. There is a false animism and a true animism. All, that, all the, the vibrant life of the earth, other than human life, is also ourselves. The false animism would, would seek some kind of isolated worship of some of these animals as opposed to others, which is not how Aboriginal peoples have ever worshipped, by the way. But anyway, true animism is, is, is respect for this, this uh, web of life as, as uh, imaging representing the, the energy of God, as the, as the tremendous passionate giving and receiving of life by itself, of self by itself, to itself. Balance is the law of our being law of our being is non-duality. In our being, in ourself, we are not other than anything. How can we be violent? How can we violate? To violate this rule, this principle, this law, this fundamental law, 
is to is to fall fall into falsehood, and that is the connection between truth and non-violence in Gandhi. I, I, I notice uh, my friend from uh, from Delhi in Oxford, Mukulika, is sitting here. She's doing a, a PhD thesis on Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan and Gandhi, the great Pathan leader, who was uh, the, the Pathans are a tribe who are driven by by violence and revenge. They were converted to, to the idea of non-violence by Gandhi. And I've speculated with her uh, uh, sometimes, the other day, in fact, when she came to see me, so this might partly be because all tribes, even ferocious warlike tribes, are, are, they, they, they deeply care for codes of honor. And I think what Khanadul Ghafak probably understood in Gandhi was that Gandhi was talking about a deeper code of honor than the tribal code of honor. But he was nevertheless talking about a code of honor. If you tell a, a code observing a violent person that violence is 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 shameful, it's 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 uh, <clears throat> oh he ought to, he wouldn't understand what you were saying. But if you say that you you were not you you're violating a code, then they might at least listen to you. It's like this this uh, this this sadhu uh, I met in India many years ago. It looked as if he'd been drinking something very special. Huh? <laughs> So I went up to him and said, uh, Babaji, what, what, what do you drink? So he said, and I'm translating, I am drunk with the chanting of the names of the Lord, he said. Now that might help an alcoholic. He might say, well, where, where can I get that drink? He would want to know. Likewise, the truly violent person who follows the code of revenge is going to be helped at some point of death by a Gandhi who says, this is no code of honor. There is a more deeply embedded code of honor. We, we, we violate that when we violate the law of our being. Don't you see you are your uh, brother in the other tribe also? I think Jesus is talking about that code. Gandhi is talking about that code, the law of our being. So that is the truth and that is non-violence. So I do think that, that I respect that dream construction of my brain. I, I think... Uh, it just happened in anxiety, but I was, I was troubled by that dream. But I can see that without the compassion of, of non-duality, mere non-violence or mere violence is not, it might end up in flames. I'm looking for number three, which has suddenly arrived number four without number. Let me see, look at my... We cannot talk about Gandhi only at the philosophical and spiritual level. He was a man who threw himself in, into, the, into the rough and tumble of politics, into the chaos and, and uncertainty of political life. So I'm going to have to talk about that. I also come from a background of, of journalism and politics. I've not myself been a politician. and it, 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 I can see the importance of that in human life. And so Kathleen, I, uh, you will forgive me, but I, I will now in introduce into the subject of Gandhi uh, the, the, the <clears throat> some large facts of, of politics, very, very large facts. Two, only two. And I apologize because this may not strictly be relevant 
to, to a spiritual understanding of that. But no, I think, Kathleen, you will, you, you, you will certainly see that it is. I think that at literally at the heart of this century, <clears throat> and I mean literally because 1945 and 1947, middle of this century, two explosions occur, which I think if humanity survives will be remembered. If humanity does not survive, part of the cause will be those two explosions. There are two explosions I want to talk about. This, this, uh, this nightmare that I've just described, do you have something to do with an explosion? Now, the first explosion is indeed the explosion of the atomic bomb. It's simply the splitting of the atom. The atom, the smallest, the tiniest. Now, I'm not talking like a scientist. I'm talking like a journalist now, as a student of history, as, as a student of images and of truth. And if science is not about images, it may well be false. Here is the atom, the tiny, tiny part of the universe. The, the atoms are the true proletariat of the universe, you might say. To want to rub its energy, stored away in it, which probably sustains the universe as a whole. To take it out for greed and for hatred is a terrible sin. That explosion, I mean even the test explosion, and of course the dropping of that bomb on human beings twice, is a, an explosion which will continue to, to rock civilization and, and conscience for centuries. To, right? no, no, no. And it, it represents the entire range of our violation of nature. It dramatizes all the wrong that we are doing to nature, both our own and the nature beyond us. And that explosion occurs in 1945. And Kathleen, there are not many people, it just is 1940-41, not too many people are writing that kind of letter to Hitler. In 1945, there are not too many people who are condemning the dropping of the bomb. People, I, I, I'm not talking about uh, 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 saintly individuals, I'm talking about the, the, the statesmen and rulers of the world. Certainly not in, in India, believe me. And, and not in Europe. The fascists were asking for it and they've got it. Is the general attitude. But Gandhi is one of the very few people who shortly after the, the drop writes and condemns the dropping of the bombs on moral grounds. He says, I'm not putting in a word in defense of Japanese misdeeds. He says it very clearly. But he says that it's quite clear now that war has no rules. That we have come to the end of war. If war was at some point, perhaps in antiquity, a respectable, and it must have been in Aboriginal times, there must have been rules. But it has lost its, its uh, integrity. And he says that we know the harm that was done to Japan. But he says, writing in 45, 46, the harm that it might do to America, we don't know this yet, he says. Prophetic words, I think. Then he says the only way out of more out of bombs is not more bombs, but non-violence. And of course, with the truth added that. <coughs> That's the first explosion. I think unless we come to terms with this possible harm that we have done to, to, to these little little entities which, which sustain the universe as a whole. 
and there is some kind of atonement, and this can only happen in Europe, Kathleen. The violation of nature in, in a kind of soulless science and soulless politics, this violation is dramatized by the, the, the splitting of the atom and the abuse of its energy and the, the use of it in war. And everyone's doing it now. Science in, of that kind is not confined to the Westerners. All Every country is going to have a bomb, whether you like it or not. But some atonement for this will have to take place at the level of theory and practice before it's too late. I, I, I see the city, this beautiful city, where, where, which I knew when I was a young, young student. I, I, I wish they would arise in this country and in other countries of Europe. A desire, not merely to put some, oh, some narrow matters of economic and political policy right. These, of course, need attention. But not to unite Europe merely, but to reunite the atom. But to heal the atom. Some deep inquiry by, by, by the, the gifts, by people with, who've been gifted in Europe with such marvelous powers of the intellect. Artists, musicians, scientists, philosophers, men and women of faith. There ought to be a conference in Canterbury, perhaps, or somewhere in, 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 in Europe on the healing of the atom. Is it not a sin of, of, of the kind that, that the religions of, uh, of Europe have, have always have talked about? I think Gandhi... Uh, can best be understood by doing something like this in Europe. I'll come back to this. The second explosion. If this is a violation of nature, there is a second explosion which is a violation of spirit and we in the East are guilty of that. This is the division of India on religious grounds in 1947. The indivisibility of India is not just the indivisibility of, of, of a piece of land, of a culture, of, of spirit itself, because India at its best has always represented the deepest truths of the spirit. In its unity, this is what is reflected. This is why the unity of India is important. Not because of political expediency, not because of administrative ease or the possibilities of economic prosperity alone, no. Because symbolically, the world would be without the idea of spirit whole, unviolated. This was violated by the East. If nature has been in our century violated by the West, no doubt this was out of a cumulative process of darkness. And if this darkness is spread all over the world, the spirit has been violated by the East, by Islam and Hinduism in India. Maybe through political initiatives that came from Islam. But the continuing aftermath of this in India today is unworthy of India. The, the, uh, the, the desire on the part of, of a certain uh, uh, range of politics in India to accelerate the division that's taking place between Hindus and Muslims is unworthy. It's, it's, it's a contribution to the same darkness it's a continuation of the same explosion. It's, it's a repetition of the same vivisection of the spirit. Gandhi, as you know, chose not 
to escalate this violence. He could have. Gandhi in 1947, Mr. Jinnah, who was the political leader of, 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 the, of the Muslims of India, had demanded the separation of a large chunk of India, a land for the Muslims, which is very strange because there are more Muslims in India than, than in Pakistan and so on. Be that as it may, there was anger, there was bitterness, there was confusion. In, in, in this, the, 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 both uh, parties were assisted by, by the haste uh, with which the British Empire sought to wind itself up. But we can't blame the British. If in 1942 we asked the British to quit India, well then they will quit. They will not stay to oblige you. You can't blame them. So the blame really is ours. We are to blame, Hindus and Muslims. But if Gandhi had wanted to stop this, he could have launched a fast unto death. He could have written a letter to Mr. Jinnah. He could have said, Mr. Jinnah, if you don't withdraw your demand in 24 hours, I will stop eating. And I will not eat until this demand is either met or I die. And what would have been the meaning of this? A saint would have been dying because of Muslim intransigence. Hindus would have been so angered that they would have wanted to destroy all Muslims. And this would have been heartily reciprocated by Muslims. This would have led to the fire which, which my nightmare represents. A fire which would have been raging till now, certainly. And for the first time in India's spiritual history, this, this fire, this violence would have been caused by a saint's intransigence. If there is some interest in Hinduism and Islam and Sikhism and others in the world today, it is because Gandhi did not do this. The, the important thing to learn from saints is not only what they do, but what they don't do. Gandhi, I, I, can, I can see this as a play, Kathleen, of Gandhi the, writing that letter. And, and a chorus of refugees appears in the wing, com coming back from Pakistan, say, saying, yes, write that letter, go on a fast, revenge. And he, he's tempted. And then another uh, chorus appears of the same people going back, saying, don't do it, Gandhi, we've seen it all, it's not worth it. And he doesn't write that letter. And he lays down his life. The Gandhi walking figure, he walked he climbed, walking the steps of the uh, uh, Viceroy's Palace in India, which earned from him that jibe from Churchill about the naked fakir striding up the steps of the Viceregal Lodge, etc., etc. But the same Gandhi walks to his appointment with his assassin in the prayer ground. He walks to his death. He greets the assassin, the spirit within him, non-dually. He will not violate that spirit, but that spirit has been violated by the East, by the religions of the East in India, the home, the trustee, the custodian, the guardian of a spirit. That's an explosion. And you still hear the, 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 uh, <clears throat> that explosion, and it recurs. So these two explosions, the violation of, of nature in Europe and a violation which is therefore occurring all over the world, Violation of if in Hindus and Muslims in India had not done this, I think Bosnia would have had a better example to follow. We have much to answer for. If Europe hadn't done that, so many countries in, in Asia wouldn't be at war with one another today. This is cause for humility. These two explosions and Gandhi's response, God-guided response, 
truth-inspired response on both these occasions, I think it's something which is the very heart of his message. Thank you. reminded me of a story, it's told in France of Jean Cocteau, it might have been told of someone else, it been equally true, who was given one of those uh, quizzes that journalists delight in giving, it was, uh, is your Cocteau, if your house was on fire, and you could save from it only one thing, what would you save? And he replied, and you speak with the of the sacred fire, and uh, and you bring the sacred fire. We all know the story of Mahatma Gandhi, but I don't think I have ever heard it spoken of at such a resonance and depth. Thank you. I'm sure people wish to ask a question. Do I have to hear your thoughts and questions? Answers? <coughs> yes. Um, as some a young generation, I feel that um, the legacy of Gandhi to this generation is that non-violation is on the worldwide agenda as a solution to conflict. Two people examples from my own reaches to that Burma. And then Yala briefly refers to the lessons that he has learned from Gandhi. And in the current situation in Tibet, when he was in the situation in his former, he is calling on Tibetans to not forget that whatever is happening to them, to remember not to react in a wonderful way. And his anger is almost towards the Tibetans who react. In one way towards the Chinese rather than the Chinese oppression. And perhaps I would also suggest that since 1945, we have um, the scale of war has changed dramatically. Um, and now we've almost lost the sense of time in the war. And if we look at the Gulf War, we're going with these horrendous missiles. And we expect to resolve a situation in a matter of perhaps days, certainly weeks. And what you're talking about of the healing matter, perhaps if the situation in countries like Burma and Tibet are successful, then that is one step towards healing matter. What a beautiful thought, uh, uh, dear friend. What a beautiful thought. And it does um, your generation credit that you should think such um, thoughts today. But why only Tibet and Burma? I, I think we we must realize that that nonviolence is not just a technique, but it might be a truth. 
in the sense, not something that we're meant to do to achieve X, Y, or Z worthy ends, but it might be a lifestyle, it might be a way of being. And this needs to be emphasized too, because the consumerism is overwhelming, including Tibet, and Burma, <coughs> and India. And, and you see, this violation of the spirit is also important. The Dalai Lama talks about, about the truth of Buddhism also, not merely the efficacy of nonviolence. The two are connected, of course. I think we need to do that. How can we forget that it already exists inside the earth, nuclear waste, which, which is active and go on for thousands of years? Some atonement. And I think a gesture of atonement might bring about precisely the conditions which would favor a solution in Tibet and in Burma. Also, a, a shift of attention from uh, rancor to, to shared guilt. Because in this, China and, uh, and every other country is involved. Uh, the, the guilt of uh, of of, uh, of exploiting the atom and of perverting science uh, and of uh, dividing uh, spirit. So I, I, I think there is some danger in thinking of nonviolence essentially as a conflict resolving technique. It is not. Some conflicts are not meant to be resolved. The conflict between the soul. And, 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 and the life of, of the body is a conflict that's meant to be uh, faced. And that's meant to resolve you and me. And this is, I, I, we, must, we must respect today in our democratic age, individuals more than nations are ready to hear this. Because our individual lives are also in a mess for a variety of reasons some healing of this life, whatever the... Uh, I remember a wonderful picture, photograph, which I remember I obtained by uh, means of a telephone call from Kathleen's house some years ago. A photograph taken by uh, a London photo agency <coughs> in Tiananmen Square when those dreadful events occurred. It shows a cluster of helmets, and above the helmet is a child obviously sitting on the shoulders of a parent and the child's doing this to the soldiers. Now those helmets look like atoms to me. And the child is the redeemed soul of that atoms. Those atoms. Now that picture, I think, a, a, a card was made, made out of that, that picture and it, it sent all over the world. But that's another story. I won't tell that to you today. But that picture to my mind teaches that the answer to, to that violence represented by the helmets is, is something like that. And this will translate into, into political policy too. I, mean, I don't know how to do it. But if we stop thinking of that, then when, if we think of nonviolence as a conflict resolving technique, then if it doesn't resolve a given technique, we say goodbye to nonviolence. That, that is the mistake. So I respect and, and, and greatly admire your thought about China, about Tibet and, and Burma. And, um, but I'm, I'm glad the Dalai Lama, while he talks about these things, he, he always talks about something, something wider and deeper also, simultaneously. And I, Tibet is the roof of the world. Think of a, a Tibet as a Temenos Academy of the World, Catholic. 
where the wisdom of China, the wisdom of India, the wisdom of, 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 of the East, Middle East, wisdom of Europe. I, I think if we begin to talk, I think there would be hundreds of thousands of, you know, people always remind, remind me and, and sort of are, are critical of our large populations in India and China. I take the point, but I think the probability of a large number of good people being there also increases, I think, there being so many, I think. So there are bound to be hundreds of thousands of people in China and India who might understand this. And we are in democratic times and the pressure of inspired populations is hard to resist. So if, if Tibet could be converted into a major center for, uh, for, the, for, for, for attempts to heal what's gone wrong in the century, I think the Chinese might be willing to, to look into this if only for the foreign exchange benefits of it. I think. Likewise, Burma, it's closed itself. But if it were to throw its doors open to the whole world for a deep study of its Buddhism. I want to make a comment later once. I then ask you a question very briefly. Um, I don't know if people are interested in Gandhi here, and all of this, and that is, but I know about the organization called Gandhi Foundation, which um, has been going for about 10 years. It's an organization which. Um, it seeks to promote the study of Gandhi and the, the um, assimilation of his wisdom about living in general. And um, we run, it runs a summer school very, which is very enjoyable and very inspiring every year, and it's very cheap. And you can even camp if you like, you don't have to. And also it is amassing a collection of Gandhi's works. And um, it is producing a series of booklets on Gandhi's thoughts as applied to present-day problems in our Western world. That is just a little um, information for anybody who doesn't know. But um, I wonder if I could ask you, you mentioned that um, Martin Buber and Heidegger and others, very considerable people, criticised Gandhi. I wonder if they criticised him on, on, on sort of non-political grounds. What I mean is not connected with the sort of expediency of non-violence in practical situations. But did they actually object to any of his principles as such? You know that. I didn't have many of their own. I rather think they did because they, they didn't they, they didn't see the connection between truth and nonviolence. Gandhi himself always spoken of both together. They thought he he was a sort of idolater of non-resistance, which he was not. And they thought they thought and they thought uh, that, that they were justified in thinking this that this would only uh, <coughs> strengthen the forces of violence because if they felt this was not Gandhi's uh, intention at all. Gandhi's intention was to to morally overwhelm and embarrass the forces of violence. Some way by showing that the forces of non-violence had truth on their side, and they could talk about the truth, but the forces of violence don't talk about truth at all. So there are all kinds of things here, which, mind you, communication between these people was not so easy in those days. They just had some thoughts, and and the war experience was also very frightening. And they thought it was an irresponsible statement. And of course, the media always blow everything out of proportion, don't they? But this is uh, something which people remember. They ask me, even even today, when I go to America, oh, but then he said this, did he not? Uh, but then they forget the context and so on. This is why I took some time to uh, to draw attention to the... Uh, Gandhi had as serious a theory of truth as Heidegger, but Heidegger wasn't probably aware of this. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about how effective Hitler was in making use of technology to manipulate things like that. And I, I don't know because I haven't read Gandhi at first hand but I think I've read about Gandhi's sort of rather more cautious 
attitude and technology, but I don't know if you could fill me in from his views about how people should uh, make use of technology or perhaps. Well, the, the, yes, the guiding principle would be the manipulation of nature, that this is wrong, that, that, that the human body is itself a piece of technology, he would have admitted, a machine, and that we must not, uh, the, the guiding principle, no manipulation, nothing which would make us idle, not merely in the sense of economic unemployment, but which would make us forget the integrity of our whole being. And also he had a sense, he was really an experimentalist in the late 19th century tradition. He thought there are all kinds of secrets of non-violence and of integral living were, were meant to be discovered and that they might actually assist our, our, our lives, our economies, and indeed our technologies too. And I think here he may have been ahead of his times. He sounded implausible 60, 70 years ago. But today I think it's, 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 quite, it's quite clear that they, the answers might lie uh, uh, closer to our own bodies and our own thoughts and our own speaking uh, and so on. So I think in a way I would say this, that by, by raising those questions he at least has provided some skepticism. Otherwise the, the, the new technology would, would, would have a walkover victory. It, it probably is anyway. But uh, there is some, uh, some opposition of a serious kind provided by Gandhi's thoughts, which, which look like uh, 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 what might call uh, uh, blind rejection of, of technology and machine. That's not what, what he was talking about. But to take walking, it, it's quite clear as you try and. Oh, by the way, I'm wearing this, this orange uh, 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 shirt. Not only because it's, it's one of the colors of the sacred in India, but also in order to be visible in the dark to motorists and so on <laughs> in London. And, but, but you see, walking is, is so much more scientific, so much more technologically superior. It, 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 it truly is. You, you can, you can <clears throat> make more changes of direction if you're walking from A to B than if you are even riding a bicycle. And you can decide to give up the whole enterprise and sit down in the middle of the road if you want. You can't do that. But truly, the technological importance of something like walking and something like, uh, oh, so many other things, like, like uh, 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 organic fuel. This is something which, it's, it's too, we should have been thinking about this 50 years ago, 40 years ago, but the time has come. I think it's a useful corrective to the excesses of... Uh, of technological thinking, which doesn't take into account the the inherent uh, technological wisdom of the body and of the integrity of um, intimate community life. So I know it's so difficult now to think of how it was over uh, hundred years ago when people it was we call ourselves a global community now, but I think we can get in touch you know, by facts or whatever, every part of the world is connected in that way. I think. There's also political wisdom, mind you, in Gandhi's economics. Uh, villages scattered all over India would have been difficult to bomb out uh, if there were only a few factories in a few places. So there is shrewdness always associated with saintliness, I think. There's very great shrewdness there. So I, I think there's a whole body of wisdom there which needs to be. But again, that I don't want to suggest that that's, that's the real Gandhi. No, I don't think so. I think it's the principles that are important. And maybe there are applications which, which Gandhi didn't talk about. Maybe there are difficulties which he didn't 
think of. But I think that's an important question. I haven't, I admit, I haven't touched that aspect of Gandhi adequately at all in this lecture. Yes? What a, what a wonderful question. <coughs> yes. I, I, I think it's very important to face this question because the Christian friends of Gandhi, uh, Charlie Andrews, for instance, an Englishman, uh, he was a great friend of India, just as Gandhi was a great friend of Britain's. And Charlie Andrews used to say to Gandhi, but no, no, why don't you say love? Why do you say non-violence? And Gandhi said, all right, love, because he didn't want to get into controversies. But I, I think, I think non-violence has this advantage in some contexts, just as love has advantage. I can see what it means to love human beings on the whole. Although there are some human beings that I don't, I'm not able to see how one can love them. Huh? But I, I, I can grow uh, towards that. I, I, can, I can begin to see how I can see how one can love animals. Yes. But when it comes to matter, if I were to ask to love matter, I would, but not violate it, I would understand that. Or nothingness. To clutter it with, with the, the rubbish of our civilization. None. If, if we were asked to love nothingness, we wouldn't know what it was. But don't violate it. So there are these negative words like non-killing. And many of these commandments are negative. Thou shalt not kill. The, not, the word, little word not is a pretty powerful resource. Non-renewable, I think. We shouldn't get rid of it too easily. So non-violation supplements love in, in areas where it's not intelligible how one can actually love the realm of uh, existence or reality. But non-violence applies to, to the whole range. And love, of course, has been used rather more, rather selfishly by human beings, hasn't it? We love our own families only, our own races, our own religions, in that our own species. But we don't love all our, all creation so easily. And love tends to be also Oh, I'm being an advocate for a word right now. Huh? I, I could do it the other way around too. But uh, there is... Um, yes, the, the net is wider, which we cast when we cast the net of non-violence. Right? We take in more. Something like that. But I, I know that this is an important question and this troubled many Christian friends of Gandhi. So he said, all right, I would say love is God. He, he meant non-violence. He really, the, his heart was with the word non-violence, yes. Non love also our own capacities to love psychologically are really more limited than we think they are. But Gandhi is more old-fashioned. He's thinking of a law which, which might be made clear to himself and his fellow human beings of non-violence. And, and he might hold humanity to that. Yes, I've been through that anxiety myself, so I'm very happy that, that you shared this.
Well, that's where they change the sometimes. Mm-hmm. Not there. You spoke earlier about the Holocaust and uh, that Gandhi had advised the Jews yes. not to resist Hitler non violently. But the Jews did not resist. They may, may not have, individuals may have, but this, 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 this advice of his yes. was seriously misunderstood and has caused a lot of hurt and anguish to Jewish people. That I can understand, and speaking as a European of the Christian inheritance, uh, I don't see how Europe can survive what we did to the Jews in the Holocaust. You, you blame Asia for the, for the second explosion. It's equally true of Europe. And it is the Holocaust is only the culmination after all two thousand years of Christian persecution of the Jews, which came to such a horror at that moment that uh, you feel that these two desperate explosions. I would say that we had that explosion, which I cannot see how how Christianity can go on talking about its own virtues after that. But the Jews were not, they, they, that the story of their civilization has been one of being the suffering servant, is it not? But surely, yes, of course, Kathleen. But two, three things here come to my mind. I don't think the the Holocaust in in Europe was done in the name of Christianity. It may have been done by former uh, nominal Christians. But the, the Holocaust in India was done in the name of religion. So that is that does make, make that different. I'm not saying better or worse. This is very important to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And also I think that there are there have been other communities uh, besides the, uh, the, the Jews in, in history. The, the massacre of the native peoples of, of South America yes, and so on. Good. And everywhere. And also I would say that there is... Uh, this kind of suffering throughout history of the Jews traumatized this in the modern period, I think. They do. But I think it's older. We, I think many civilizations don't know enough about their own prehistory and so tend to be somewhat uh, arrogant, uh, I think, in this matter. I think perhaps this kind of sin belongs to the forgotten uh, parts of uh, the history of many peoples. I think we have been... And this might be some kind of consolation, I think, to Jewish people to think that this is the human condition. Yes. But it was done in the name of religion for 2,000 years. Yes, yes, I agree. But then, then the disappearance of religion as a factor in, in, in the life of Europe, and then to do, 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 do that in the name of, of race and indeed to the glory of science and technology. And this is being done to nature. So there is a holocaust which is being suffered by all life and, and nature. So I think the bearers of the Holocaust experience um, in India or in Europe uh, must turn their attention to the earth as a whole, I think, in some way. That might be the only way of bearing the burden. There might be no other way. To think of the even greater suffering uh, that, that we, as the human species, inflict on non-human life might be the only way of turning our attention away from the enormous suffering that we inflict on one another, bad though that is, might be the only way of, of, 
of seeking forgiveness. Might be. It might be that the ecological crisis is a moral blessing in a way. It enables us to see our own uh, crimes against one another in perspective. It's possible. Well, if there are no more questions, I think we should... Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you very much.